Brought to you by PrayLatin.com, makers of prayer cards featuring complete English phonetic renderings of Latin pronunciations. We've all heard the famous words of Pope Paul VI, that the smoke of Satan had entered the church. Those words were given publicly in 1972. Five years later, in 1977, Paul VI doubled down and said the following, quote, The tale of the devil is functioning in the disintegration of the Catholic world said Pope Paul VI on October 13, 1977, in a formal address marking the 60th anniversary of the sixth and final Fatima apparition, the miracle of the sun, at Fatima, Portugal, on October 13, 1917. The darkness of Satan has entered and spread throughout the Catholic Church, even to its summit. Apostasy, the loss of the faith, is spreading throughout the world and into the highest levels within the Church. Pope Paul VI's remarks on Satan's indwelling, even the highest levels of the Catholic Church, were recorded, reported on the following day, October 14, 1977, in a Milan-based daily newspaper, Corriere della Sera, end quote. That passage was taken from the blog of a Catholic named John Barker, who was a journalist in his day job. Many have debated whether Paul VI was speaking symbolically there to describe the effects of modernism in the Church and in the world, or if he was being literal. It is known that he was he experienced a lot of sorrow after the council, after the promulgation of the new mass with how things went in the church. Many of us think he was being quite literal in his words. As things spiraled out of control in the church after the council, a number of figures have spoken over the years of the presence of the demonic in the Vatican. Malachi Martin spoke of it literally in his famous book, Windswept House, and the late exorcist Father Gabriel Amorth spoke about it in a different way. So I'm going to go over the question of an enthronement ceremony that was said to have taken place in the Vatican and placed the devil in control of what his followers called the citadel, meaning the Holy See, because since the council, things in the church have gotten worse and worse. So let's take a look at the question at hand. In an interview in Vanity Fair that appeared in 2016, Father Amorth was asked about Satan. Is Satan a person, a physical being? And what is the influence of the diabolical in the world today? Father Amorth's answer will sound familiar to those who believe that the diabolical was enthroned in the Vatican in the 1960s, as Malachi Martin attested. Quote, Father, you write up dialogues you've had with Satan. Have you ever seen him? I asked Father Amorth. Satan is pure spirit. He often appears as something else, to mislead. He appeared to Padre Pio as Jesus, to frighten him. He sometimes appears as a raging animal. The ritual of exorcism is not practiced by an ordinary priest. An exorcist requires specific training and must be thought to have a personal sanctity. He can be exposed to dangerous behavior and personal threat. His prayer often causes a violent response as he attempts to shine a beam of light into the darkness. You said publicly that you believe, referring to the current church scandals, that, the, that Satan is in the Vatican. Do you believe this? Yes. Today, Satan rules the world. The masses no longer believe in God. And yes, Satan is in the Vatican. End quote. Think about the statement he just made there. He proceeded saying that the devil was in the Vatican by saying that the devil was the lord of the world, that the masses no longer believe in God. Then he said the devil was in the Vatican. Father Amorth was a man of careful words. He did not just flippantly say that. He meant it and the implications that many in the Roman Curia in our time simply do not believe. Should this be surprising, look at the gospel of man that is preached today. This gospel that says that we can achieve earthly paradise, a gospel where spreading the gospel of Christ and working for the salvation of souls is actively discouraged. 
and most sermons and addresses by the Pope are full of vaguely nice-sounding words, but very little about the death and resurrection of our Lord, the blood price paid for our sins and for our salvation. This is the standard fare now in the church, a gospel that has man focus on himself instead of on God. The devil doesn't need you to worship him, though I'm sure the poor souls who fall into that amuse him greatly. He only needs you to stop worshiping God in a manner that pleases God. That's it. That's all he needs you to do. And this false gospel in the church today is a danger to souls. But how would Satan be in the Vatican? I mean, that sounds preposterous, right? This claim was made most famously by Malachi Martin, who in his famous novel, Windswept House, opens the work with an account of a ritual that enthroned Lucifer in the Vatican. Now I'd give you all the illustrious details, but I'll put it to you this way. I have a pretty strong constitution about things, and that scene in that book caused me to put the novel down and walk away for a few minutes. I've only ever done that with two books in my entire life, the other being some horror novel I foolishly read when I was a teenager. But this, Martin always said, was real. It involved a very young lady named Agnes, who was the focus of the ritual. I'll just put it that way. And the celebrants, if you want to call them that, were said to have been the late Father Joseph Bernadin, the future Cardinal Archbishop of Chicago, who was also the inventor of terms like the seamless garment theology, as well as being the founder or one of the founders of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. <laughs> Something to think about for a while. And there was another priest there who I haven't identified. It was a twin ceremony, though, two held simultaneously, one in Greenville, South Carolina, at the parish of St. Mary's, and the other in the Vatican itself. Father Martin described it this way in his novel, quote, Lucifer's enthronement was effected within the Roman Catholic Citadel on June 29, 1963, a fitting date for the historic promise about to be fulfilled. As the principal agents of the ceremony well knew, Evil tradition had long predicted that the time of the prince would be ushered in at the moment when a pope would take the name of the Apostle Paul. That requirement, the signal that the availing time had begun, had been accomplished just eight days before the elevation of the latest Peter in the line. There had barely been time since the papal conclave had ended for the complex arrangements to be readied, but the Supreme Tribunal had decided that there could be no more perfect date for the enthronement of the prince than this feast day of the twin princes of the citadel. Saints Peter and Paul. And there could be no more perfect place than the chapel of St. Paul itself, situated as it was so near to the Apostolic Palace. The complexity of their arrangements were dictated mainly by the nature of the ceremonial event to be enacted. Security was so tight in the grouping of Vatican buildings within which this gem of a chapel lay that the full panoply of the ceremonial could not possibly escape detection here. If the aim was to be achieved, the ascent of the prince was actually to be accomplished in the availing time, then every element of the celebration of the Calvary sacrifice must be turned on its head by the other and opposite celebration. The sacred must be profaned. The profane must be adored. End quote. I'll spare you most of the details of that, and for good reason. St. Paul's Chapel is Capea Paolina. <laughs> Sorry for my horrible pronunciation of Italian. But that is what they're talking about, not the um, St. Paul's Audience Hall, which that serpentine-looking building with the very bizarre and, frankly, demonic-looking statues that are on the that adorn the stage right behind where the Pope sits whenever he gives a personal audience. So let's not confuse those two buildings. Now, if that story is to be believed, the purpose of enthroning the adversary in St. Paul's Chapel was to make it possible for a final pontiff to eventually arise 
who would build the universal church of man, a broad and all-welcoming ecclesial body, whose sole purpose is to build utopia on earth, essentially dissolve the Catholic Church, and to take our eyes off of Christ. At the conclusion of the ceremony, it is alleged that a high-ranking official present in Rome for the ceremony ascended the soiled altar and placed a decree upon it which read, read as follows, quote, Whosoever, whosoever shall, by means of this inner chapel, be designated and chosen as the final in-line successor in the Petrine office, shall, by his very oath of office, commit himself and all he does command to be the willing instrument and collaborator with the builders of man's home on earth and throughout man's cosmos. He shall transform the ancient enmity into friendship, tolerance, and assimilation, as these are applied to the models of birth, education, work, finance, commerce, industry, learning, culture, living, and giving life, dying, and dealing death. So shall the coming age of man be modeled. End quote. It's a lot of tail-hardian language there, and does it sound familiar to you? Does that sound like what we're living through in the church now? It should, because that is precisely what we're living through now in our time, and frankly have been for several decades in the church, only made more obvious under the reign of Francis, though I don't think he'll be the final one. Earlier in 2021, a priest writing for the Remnant offered to clarify a few details that he knew about the event. The priest, Father Brian Harrison, knew Father Malachi Martin in life. He provides these details of the event. This is interesting. Quote, I can clarify what Father Martin said was the true date of the evil enthronement inside the Vatican with the following information from a quarter century ago that I have never made public until now. In the last decade of Malachi Martin's life, he died in 1999, I became a personal friend of his and would visit him in his Manhattan apartment whenever I was in New York. In the section headed 1963 in the prologue of Windswept House, we read that this shocking ceremony, enthroning the fallen angel Lucifer in the chapel of St. Paul, took place on June 29, 1963, the feast of Saints Peter and Paul, the eve of the coronation of the newly elevated Pope Paul VI. It's celebrated gloatingly the long-prepared-for arrival of a pope more open to modernist changes than any of his predecessors. Around the time the book was published in 1996, Father Martin told me that this date was indeed factional, and that the true date of this blasphemous act of devilry, coordinated with a corresponding ceremony on the American side of the Atlantic, was actually one day later. That is, it took place the night after Paul VI's coronation in St. Peter's Square on the afternoon of Sunday, June 30th. Malachi told me it was indeed carried out in the chapel of St. Paul as Windswept House says, and began at midnight on the night of June 30th, July 1st, 1963. End quote. It's a minor detail of difference. Malachi Martin always described his novels as works of faction, meaning the events were real, but some of the details are fictional, like changing the dates for this ceremony. Now, why would he write it that way? Given that he claimed that these events were real, creating some plausible deniability for himself was an act of self-preservation. The mysteries around his passing leave some of us wondering if that those prudential actions actually helped him at all in the end. Windswept House was not the first work of his that can be dubbed faction. Final Conclave is an odd novel of his that is also faction, and his magnificent work, Vatican, is required reading for anyone who wants to understand what was going on in the church in the 1940s until the 1980s. It helps to make it clear that the mess in the church predates the council, and that the council was clearly the fruits of the efforts of the enemy within the church. Vatican also makes clear the answer to the question of what would he have done if he became pope. And it also has another detail that I'll talk about in another video in the future, about a sort of a a deal the Vatican had made in the 19th century, allegedly, to work with the forces of the world, or at least to become neutral with them in the new sort of post-1870 reality. And I'll go into that in a future video. That is 
fascinating and, and helps us to understand why we see so much of what we see now. Now, that much is made obvious that the problems in the church began before the council, if you read Vatican, and it's also a work of faction, but the characters are all easily identifiable as, as they are in Windswept House. One of the things I'm going to do is put a list of characters from Windswept House that has the real-life counterparts' uh, names next to them, because he does change names. Some of the names will be a mystery to most people who don't pay attention to international wheeling and dealing, but a few of those names will jump off the screen at you. So go to returntotradition.org and look for the post with this podcast title, and you'll see the link. And if you're one of those who sort of debates internally the Benedict is the real Pope or Pope Francis is the real Pope question, read Windswept House because the entire plot line around it will sound eerily familiar after, you know, in the aftermath of Benedict XVI stepping down. Now, for those of you wondering how Father Martin would have learned of this event, here's what the priest who knew him had to say in that article from The Remnant. At the time that he and Father Martin had their friendship in 1996, the priest was in Rome studying, quote, now, during that year, I, like many other priests, was offering Mass daily at one or other of the many side altars in St. Peter's Basilica. Father Martin was at home in New York City, and in a telephone conversation with him, I suggested that it would be appropriate for both of us to celebrate Masses of Reparation on the 33rd anniversary of this wicked outrage, I in the Vatican, where it took place, and he on the east coast of the U.S., where the parallel dark ceremony was simultaneously carried out. Again, providentially, even the day of the week was the same. July 1st fell on a Monday in 1996, as it had in 1963. Father Martin readily agreed, and that's what we did. I offered a Mass of Reparation in the Blessed Sacrament Chapel of St. Peter's on July 1st, 1996, a ferial day in the Novus Ordo calendar, and he celebrated his Mass for that intention on the same day in the little oratory within his apartment. For him it was the Feast of the Most Precious Blood, since he always celebrated the traditional Latin Mass. Father Martin also told me the evil act became known because one of its participants repented a decade or so later on his deathbed and confessed the grave sin. And as an aside, you see that confession in the book, actually. The Roman priest hearing his confession told him he had a grave obligation to allow this shocking sacrilege to be known to the Supreme Pontiff in order for a reconsecration of the Pauline Chapel to be made. Accordingly, he told the penitent he could not absolve him unless the latter gave him permission to make the shocking event known to higher ecclesiastical authority. The penitent did so, and Father Martin told me later he learned the whole story through his Vatican connections. Hopefully there was a reconsecration of the chapel, but if so, it would of course have been carried out in strict secrecy in order to avoid scandal. End quote. Was St. Paul's ever reconsecrated? We have no way to know for certain, but the Pope at the time was John Paul II, and his head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith was at the time then Cardinal Ratzinger. So we can assume that it would have probably been reconsecrated. Regardless of what you might think of those two, I doubt they would have gone in for letting that kind of thing continue happening or, have, or let stand in church property. But that seems to have made little difference, because eventually we got the man the world sees as Pope who is doing exactly what those who did the enthronement ceremony would have wanted using the church to further the earthly goals of creating utopia. Maybe the problem is a twofold one. The ceremony was done in two locations simultaneously, one in Greenville, South Carolina, and the other in the Vatican. Perhaps the parish of St. Mary's in Greenville needs to be reconsecrated, if it's the same building as the one the ritual is said to have been done in. Was that parish reconsecrated? I doubt it, and here's why. A few days ago, the parish priest at St. Mary's in Greenville released a letter to the parish telling them that they must submit to the decree of Caesar regarding the most debated topic in our day. 
it's one that's not permitted to be spoken of on pretty much any platform right now, but I'll have a link to his letter through an article Anne Barnhart shared of my snarkly tweeting about how I do think the enthronement was done at that parish because of that letter, because it's literally the same parish. It's a weird coincidence, all things considered. So again, check out the show notes at returntotradition.org if you're interested in seeing my sources. Malachi Martin first mentioned the enthronement in his book, The Keys of This Blood, which he published prior to Windswept House. In it, he says the following, quote, John Paul II came up against the irremovable presence of a malign strength in his own Vatican and in certain bishops' chanceries. It was what knowledgeable churchmen called the superforce. Rumors always difficult to verify tied its installation to the beginning of Pope Paul VI's reign in 1963. Indeed, Paul had alluded somberly to the smoke of Satan which had entered the sanctuary, an oblique reference to an enthronement ceremony by the followers of the devil in the Vatican. End quote. The superforce is the term Malachi Martin and I myself used for the same things Vigano talks about, mostly in his letters that are just too spicy for this place. That confluence of secular and ecclesiastical power into one hand that is trying to build utopia on earth, for their own aggrandizement, of course. The plot of Winsot House is not at all about that ritual, though it does begin with that, but rather about familiar-sounding figures and organizations trying to build what they call a better world. It's worth reading if you can handle some of the things that I alluded to earlier in this piece. And what do you think about this? Is that what we're seeing just the natural result of permitting modernists to run wild in the church and letting them run the church itself, or is it something supernatural in character? Was Father Amorth talking about the same thing as Malachi Martin? Let me know in the comments, please, and like and subscribe if you haven't. It really does help. As always, pray for the church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.